2: Just a reminder that this episode was recorded pre-lockdown, back when we could all be in a room together. Enjoy listening. All good jingles have to be three notes. Did you know that? No. Dun, so. dun dun mm, dun. <laughs> <laughs> May I bring your attention to a brand new episode of Homo Sapiens? My name is Christopher Sweeney. I'm going to have to tell, ask you to tell me yours.
3: I'm Alan Cumming. No. Top international celebrity and amateur bartender.
2: That's what it says on your Instagram profile, doesn't it? Yes. I love that I know that. Um, how's How's you? I'm pretty good. I um
3: I went swimming. Oh, I actually found today very annoying in the swimming
2: pool. Okay, go
3: because on. Because I go, so, I don't go normally go at this time. And there was people in the lane that just shouldn't have been in the lane. Do you know that thing? Slow or fast? I'm a la- Fast.
2: I'm a fast uh, swimmer.
3: Oh, okay. And I'm a lane swimmer. And just when people were doing that thing where they, like you're hitting you, as you. When I would go past them, I would sort of try to avoid them because mm-hmm. it just, and, and they're, I don't know. They were just annoying. I, um and and they were kind of like swimming like they were like swimming for their lives from a shark <laughs> as well do you know that way
2: <laughs> yes I'm not very good at sharing those any kind of those things with people because people just get in your way and it's stressful
3: yeah I mean I think that's the point I go at, at the, I go at the times when it's just actual serious swimmers rather than weird people who are you know drowning fleeing from death
2: yeah. do you have uh am i dreaming or did you tell me you have headphones that work in water you're dreaming no, it's not you. But
3: I do want to get, um, I've got to get my little things to go in my ears because my ears keep getting water in them and they get blocked. And that's why I'm, I'm. In a, you know, when I'm, I am an actor. Yes. It's very important to me to hear because as Meryl Sheep said, acting is about listening. Oh, I love and, that. And uh, I'm not hearing very well right now because my <laughs> ears are full Hello, of blocked Alan. water. What? <laughs> do you know what I did once? What? I once was the ambassador to Marrakesh oh. with um, uh, what do you call her? That lovely lady, uh, An- An- Angelica Houston. She oh, was yeah. the ambassador tricks. And I got a free holiday to Marrakesh and where I nearly got bombed by Al-Qaeda, that's another story. Oh. And, but I had to go to this party in New York and it was a lovely sort of Moroccan themed thing. And I had to get up and stand up and, and, and talk about Marrakesh. Oh. And I'd never been. Wow. And I pretended. I just, I just, I didn't say I'd been. I talked about it in a sort of circuitous way. Yes. About it, but I actually just pretended because so that I could go to Marrakech.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> but it was so funny. Angelica. Nothing going, if not resourceful. Angelica's going down. Um, you come out of Mamounia and you go down the avenue. I'm like, oh yes,
2: never been there. <laughs> Seeing the wonderful tiled walls and sandy yes. things. And then, and then and again, the a snake charmer on a corner. <laughs> I've been to Marrakesh, I love it. Quite a quite a strong LGBTQ plus history, of course. Very much so, because of... so And
3: uh, a lots a lot, of Morocco, actually, Tangiers, Casablanca, all those places. Yeah, but it was a sort of a place you could go and be free uh, sexually. And uh, and then, and, you know, you wouldn't have to... I think it was that no, they, well, they, if they were... They couldn't go home with a boy in London, no. but they could take a, someone from a bar to a hotel room in Tangier. So they all went to, to Tangier. It's like Christopher Isherwood, you know, and Auden uh, yes. and all those people who... I, what I think is hilarious about them is you think that, uh, uh, you know, th- they were these boys who just hap- were, were there in Berlin at the time of this great period of history and they mm. cataloged and chronicled it and they were like these sort of zeitgeisty magnets for all this stuff. They went to get cock. Yeah. that's why they went to Berlin they were all these Cambridge boys and from repressed families and they went to Berlin because they knew they could have sex yeah and it w- and they wouldn't be ashamed and i um, talking of Christopher Shewood and Cabaret which yes. of course was uh, the musical that was based on his writings we come to our guest this week who is a great Cabaret artist certainly is the lovely
2: Justin Vivian Bond Justin Vivian Bond who that was a good link wasn't it it was a really good thanks link. everybody it was a really good link She kind of famously was the person who invented the MX symbol. So instead of Mr. or Mrs., like she was the first person who, yeah, yeah, who brought that to prominence.
3: And now it's on the, I think it's on the British, uh, isn't that right? British passport. Did we talk about that? Where's my glasses? I don't know.
2: But you uh, are old pals, no? Go way
3: back, yes. I've known Justin for. Long time, like 20 years, maybe. I mean, not not well for 20 years, we don't know each other much better now, but mm. I've known, yeah, I think we met when I was doing cabaret in '98, '99, probably around then, early 2000. Maybe. Oh, really? But yes, uh, and she's, you know, it's been fascinating to watch her over the years, literally uh, transition, yes, uh, but also transition from a kind of a, 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 a a, a sort of a downtown comedy cabaret act with Kiki and Herb into this really incredible solo artist who I, uh, with a an amazing voice and also just this incre- like an incredible raconteur who's very sort of prescient and just always seems to have such great, messages about whatever the subject is she's talking about and I just I'm so
2: full of admiration for her skill as a performer mm. really amazing and she's just done opera right
3: she did not run Vienna yeah
2: with who was that with uh, Tilda Swinton no 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 oh. <laughs> that's so funny though no uh,
3: I don't wrong? think Tilda wasn't in it it was about Orlando.
0: I think, that's, I think that's what you're
3: thinking it was it Why? was right 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 it I was, saw a or, picture it was of a her with pro, Tilda of she and Tilda are great chums I see I don't know how they know each other but they've been uh, they, but anyway they're, yeah they are chums very much so and uh, got it but um, yeah no I think she's yeah but she's I love that she's always doing interesting things uh, you know is, is an, uh, a visual artist as well um, there's all sorts actually I, she's been, she, I've been in a uh, movie with her uh, called After Louis. Um, yeah,
2: I suppose the thing—the thing about her—I think you know this series is about icons, and people like her have actually done such incredible stuff, yeah, which is you know has led the way for so many other people. Yes, uh, and I think that's why she's an icon, and all of the stuff that she's done with the MX stuff has led the way in a way that has just entered the public conversation. But, aside from all of that, she's fucking hysterical. Hilarious. I feel some agony uncle coming on. Agony uncles. <laughs> I've got one here from someone called S. Mm-hmm.
3: At 57, I've begun to experience and fear the inevitability of death. How do you cope? <sighs> wow, we're going deep straight away on agony uncles here on Homebook. Mm-hmm. Podcast. We really are. Um I I think of death all the time. Do you?
2: I do, and I actually. So my dad died three years ago, and for about a year, I that's all I could think about.
3: What him dying or death? You death, died, because you
2: because somebody near you dying suddenly makes you realise that it's real. Yeah, and I was freaking out in a sort of silent internal way, in a way that you don't even realise. And then I read a book called With the End in Mind. Have you ever read that? Yeah. Which is all about how we don't talk about death. Yeah. And we don't, and we're just so weird about it, particularly in the UK. Yeah. Um, And And that helped you? I found it really enormously helpful, um, but I had a very profound feeling that I felt like I I am stuck in a computer game that I didn't choose whether to be in or not because this thing starts and it's life, but then it's going to end and it will go to blackness in my opinion, because I don't have any religious faith. Me too. So I find it quite, sometimes that can feel quite overwhelming. And I actually think what gets me back to feeling Mm. okay about it is like, you can't do anything about that. Right. So think about who you love. Think about what you enjoy. Think about doing good by people. Live in the moment. Ta-da.
3: To answer um, S's question, um, is i would say i i think as you get older it's inevitable you're going to think more about death Mm. and i cope with it by trying to embrace it and and also trying to seize the day and enjoy life as much as i can
2: yeah and Um, i think read that book with the end in mind because i think it's been a beautiful brilliant thing and i also think a lot of people go through this phase and it won't last forever and i
3: think yes Yes, and also I think fearing inevitability, you have to accept inevitability. If you can't change something, accept it. You've got to move on. Um, Now, here's one I'm loving. um, W says, I remember doing Alan's wife's hair in 1989. That's not technically a question, (laughs) although there's agony in it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, moving Um, on. L says, um, This is a woman. She says to me, how can I confidently come out to my mum as bi, even though she's asked me if I'm gay forever? (laughs) I mean, what? You just got to tell her? You just got to tell her. How can I confidently come out to my mum as bi, even though she's asked me if I'm gay forever? I think this is what you do, Uh, Elle. You say, hey, mum, you know how you have annoyingly asked me forever if I'm gay? Well, you are half right.
4: Yeah.
3: I am bisexual. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going out to dinner now.
2: Bye. <laughs> I think that's the way to do it. Well, I like that. I'm into that. You're it.
4: welcome.
2: Um, uh, Jay says to us, "How to muster the courage to perform in drag as a shy person?"
3: I mean, gosh. Well, um, it's interesting as a performer. I don't. I sort of think. Yeah. It's hard for me. I, I've done that quite a lot. I mean, I don't have a. I, you're have, like, I have. You're like,
2: a, honey, book the old Vic and get on with it. <laughs> Well, yeah. I think.
3: Saturday night, eight o'clock, BBC One, love. Yeah. Um, no, I think. Uh, gosh, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I, I mean, there's two things there, it seems to me mm. the drag and the actual performing thing.
2: Well, I, isn't it? I think it's one is. Although a, drag, in a way, is a, a performance in itself, but. I think one is admitting that you want to do that to yourself. It feels like there's that bit for like, yourself. Even. Am I, yeah, or, or am I that person, A? Yeah, it sounds and then like. B, I've got to take it out on the road. Yes. <laughs> and that's hard. Why
3: don't you just I mean, how maybe you should just not maybe you should just be in drag for a bit and go out. Do it at home. And then do it at home or then go to for, to bars and be in drag. But then maybe the performance part, you know, maybe work up your act whilst you're just chatting to friends.
2: Yeah, I'm amazed you haven't suggested um a Valium and vodka yet.
3: <laughs> but that, well, with drag queens that's inherent. <laughs> yeah, darling.
2: <laughs> well no, I think so, listen, I mean I think, to, yeah, it's it, how to muster the courage to perform in drag. To perform in drag as a shy person, <sighs> I mean, I think there's a misconception that people who perform are not shy. I think. Oh, hello. Yeah. I'm shy. You're very shy. I am. Um, I think a lot of people are really shy who perform, and it's it's not about getting over that. You just got to go with my shyness in mind. I still want to do it, and you just got to get on with it, yeah, right? Yeah, that's it. And
3: also, I think shyness. Uh, 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 ins- you can be shy. And- I'm shy in certain situations. I'm also incredibly mm. able to be um, confident and uh, do things that I you might not think a shy person would do in others. I think shyness is something that you should comp-
2: compartmentalize. Yeah, and also I think, I do think shyness is about, so someone, sorry, and to, to our listener who's written in, this isn't actually about you this next bit, but it fascinated me. Someone said shyness is self-obsession which I thought was boom, made my mind pop a bit. Because it is a bit like you're going into a room being shy. It's, you're sort of slightly thinking about yourself the whole time. Yes. And actually, what I think you're good at, for example, is that like, even if you are shy, you're like, well, I'm going to get on with this. I'm going to yeah. put in the effort and the time because it's hard work yeah. actually going, hello, my name's dot, 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 and yeah. having to go around a room with people you don't know. And, and, I, and I think the way that does link to what this person's written in and said is that if you put yourself out there, it is astounding how much people support you. It Absolutely. always surprises you.
3: Absolutely, and I think like when I when I, when you that thing that you're talking about about going into the room and going hello, <clears throat> I have to do that quite a lot and often I'm not feeling very confident. But what I do is I I sort of think of myself as uh, there's me, mm-hmm. and then there's Alan coming, mm-hmm. and so I play a version of myself and go hello, I'm Alan and I'm, how are you doing and blah 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 oh you know la la thank you very much,
0: mm-hmm. and so I
3: think actually being if you want to be in drag. That in itself is a Mm -hmm. way of being another person Mm -hmm. that can make it much easier. So use the drag as your portal to confidence.
2: Yeah, and actually that's um, something that Justin speaks about, that Justin was talking about first doing Kiki and Herb, right? And how um, she was trying to get gigs and it wasn't really working out. And then she created this persona, which was this really toxic, rude person. And that enabled her... She suddenly got booked in loads of gigs and it's about have the safety of an alter ego, right? Yes, And indeed. I, and I yeah. think it's about doing that, um, trying to work out what that is. And and I think, you know, stick yourself out there and boy, oh boy, people will support you. And, and that's a nice segue to
3: in- say, please enjoy the charms and delights of Justin Vivian Bond. Indeed. I always think like the difference between gay and queer is a huge one right. and that is, make, is makes some things very clear to people if you sort of say that queer is a, it, it's an identity and a sensibility and it's, it is political mm-hmm. and that gay is something really it's only sort of defined by the outside
4: right mm. and I wanted to be glamorous I didn't want to be like a muscle queen or yeah. anything like that and then I found out you could be you know sort of Fabulous in a way that the people I was around here weren't. The mix thing
3: that was because did you invent that?
4: Uh, I think so. I mean, some people did some research and someone used that term in like a like hippie family magazine in 1977, <laughs> but I didn't know about that. I just was like, oh, I want something that's not Mr., Mrs., or Ms., and um, so I. Chose mix because I'm a mix, Mm -hmm. and I thought it was just so obvious. Why hadn't it become a common thing? And that was, you know, maybe in two thousand six or something. Yeah, I remember that because that was around the time. A long time ago.
3: Yeah, that was all happening. You did the Dendrophile record, and you did.
4: No, I became mixed before, even before the Dendrophile record. I was mixed bond I looked back uh, because I couldn't remember, uh, and I wanted to remember because people were asking me. Yeah. You know, did you? Coin that mm. and you know I don't want to take credit for anything that I don't deserve but I definitely popularized totally. it. Yeah. I definitely you know put the idea into people's heads and I remember getting an email from some activists in the UK saying oh the, I think it was in Brighton and they were trying to come up with terms and they wondered if they could if, how I felt if they used mix as one of the drop-down things. Mm. I was like, of course I'd be thrilled. Mm. And then it was on the drop-down things on the internet, you know, if you were going yeah. to the post office or yes. in the it's UK. It's become an official thing there in Britain. It's, yeah, it's an yeah. official thing. So That's great. Yeah, it's really cool. And I fought so hard with the standards department and the style section of the New York Times because even when I published my book, uh, and it was all about being trans and the headline was like a boy's own story or something stupid oh, like god that, sake. you know? And so and they they just wouldn't honor my pronouns and I was just like constantly well actually Elizabeth Koch, my girlfriend who was the publicist at um, Feminist yeah. Press, she she fought a lot of those battles on my behalf because it, it's so personal yeah. that you're just like, Oh my god, you don't wanna always be at war with people that you're hoping will you know give you publicity <laughs> or whatever but you also feel a responsibility to your community and to yourself once you throw down the gauntlet like that mm. to really stand by too. it yeah yeah so I mean there's I'm, I'm sure mm. you know you know when you're a spokesmodel for a whole community you you sometimes feel pressure to fight battles on their behalf that you might not fight so much for mm. yourself and uh Sometimes there even battles that you don't even care about as much, but you know they do, and you yeah. have a voice, yeah. so mm-hmm. you go to bat because that's that's your responsibility, and it's a blessing to be in that position, a, of a platform. So, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. So, also sometimes when you hear the arguments back that are just so flawed, you're like, "Well, now we have to fight this because you're just telling yeah, me. of course, you've got like debating,
4: yeah, yeah, they're just like, I always like, think are you doing that on purpose, <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I always think that, that when people say things like, you know, oh, I can't keep up. What do we call them now? You know, or yeah. about about many things, but like, you know, disabled people or or certain mm. nationalities mm-hmm. that want to be. Or, but mm-hmm. there's, there's many, many things that, um, and then this, this idea that people are resistant yes. to, I think if, if those people want to be thought of and called this
4: mm. why are you why do you want to say no i
3: call something else is, mm.
4: so just out of curiosity when was it that you decided that you just weren't interesting interested in learning anything else for the rest of your life yeah. when did you give up learning mm. just do you have a date <laughs> because <laughs> that's basically what they're saying <laughs> I don't want to learn anything else I already know enough <laughs> And it's, yeah. pathetic. it's
3: ridiculous. And I'm an authority as well. Yeah. How, what do you call yourself? Like, as you because uh, I was thinking you've acted in so many things and you're a singer and you're a, what do you, how do you, what would you like? What's on your passport?
4: Trans artist. Love. It passport. doesn't say that on the passport. I oh. don't. Does your passport say your profession? I think. Oh, well, maybe not. Maybe. I like trans genre artist. It's accurate.
3: Mm hmm. And um, I was just curious about you, you're you from this side of the country, Pennsylvania, is it? Maryland. Massachusetts, Maryland. Yes. Maryland. I can never understand that.
4: What? Well, it's not called Maryland? Yeah. Oh, is it not? It's, no, Maryland. it's Maryland. Ma- Maryland. 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 Like Maryland. 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 Oh, okay. Maryland Monroe, yeah. Monroe. Yeah. But yeah, wow. it's Maryland for it's some th- reason. Mm-hmm. And then, then you went. some. did you go to the study I went in to college Sam? here? College in New York City. Yeah, on Long Island at Adelphi University. Oh, well,
3: and that's where I just recently did a retreat.
4: Oh, really? Yes, I went to. Yes, someone told me you'd gone there. I
3: did a, you know, the theater workshop, New York theater workshop. Uh-huh. Said, How did you end up in San Francisco? That's because um,
4: then I graduated and I lived in the city for like oh, several months, and then I went back to Maryland, and lived near DC because I wasn't going to come back to New York until I had my equity card. Uh-huh. And then I decided I wasn't gonna be an actor. So I moved to San Francisco. I was gonna uh, go to grad school and become like study art history or something so I could be a professor. But then I discovered queer performance and queer theater in San Francisco. And I was like, oh, there is an audience. I don't have to pretend to be straight. I don't have to. I mean, I was almost kicked out of my college uh, freshman year theater uh, the theater program. Theater program told me, because they gave us evaluations after the first couple mm. months, and they told me if I didn't butch up, I was gonna be asked to leave the program. Oh and so I went to the gym to work out and had sex with a Brazilian man. And the next thing I knew, I wasn't butcher, but I was sinning. Um, so uh, they didn't kick me out, but uh, I eventually but did, was like, Did you, because you butched up? No, I did not no. butch up. They, and besides which, I wasn't on a, scholarship I mean at the time I thought maybe they'd throw me out they weren't yeah. gonna throw me out I was paying yeah of course that's the thing um, but you education. don't know that when you're an 18 year old kid yeah um, it was just you know of course you're never gonna work in the theater if people think you're gay and all of that and so and as it turns out ironically uh, both uh, myself and Miss Coco Peru oh are probably the most well-known people from uh, Adelphi in that era. So mm. they were completely wrong. Mm. I call it uh, the gra- the drag academy that the, the two of us graduated from.
3: <laughs> wow, that's good. Imagine now, though, isn't it interesting? So what was that, 25 years ago or something? Ten. <laughs> but <laughs> but how that would be received now if a, if a, a oh,
4: member of staff... So much trouble for talking to yeah. people that way, I hope. I hope so, yeah. yeah. So you went to San Francisco, and then I I was going to I I I was you know going to be an artist, a visual artist, and I had these friends that wrote this play, and they they wanted me to play this character, and they told me I was going to have to audition, and I hadn't auditioned in a while, and I just was like, okay, well I went to Theater Rhinoceros, they had an open casting call, and I went just to get back into practice auditioning. And I was cast in their first play of the season that year. And I was the young leading, you know, romantic lead in this musical. And uh, then Kate Bush, uh, Kate Bornstein, not oh, Kate yeah. Bush, Kate Bornstein saw me in that play and asked me to be in Hidden Agenda, which was this play that she did. And she wanted me to play this 19th century French hermaphrodite whose journals were discovered by Michel Foucault named Herculean Barbin. And uh, I was playing this transgender character. And I had just been cast as a young romantic gay lead. And I was like, if I play this character, everybody's gonna know about me. And I was finally getting, you know, play. And I was like, no fags gonna wanna have sex with me if I'm trans or, you know, they think that I'm transgender. And I knew that everybody would know. And I was just not ready to be that. But. Uh, Why
3: did you think everybody would know?
4: Because I was. And but, I was playing one, and because and uh, that was just, you know, I it would just <clears throat> the cat would be out of the bag, you know. I it just Did I you just know knew that it
2: you were at that time.
4: Yeah, I'd always known, but I was like, whatever. Hmm. And uh, I was so you feel that you felt pressure
3: not to be out about being trans because you would get I felt pressure not to be out
4: about anything I mean the summer before I moved to San Francisco I came out to my parents and you know my dad was giving me literature and offering to send me to um, conversion camp. conversion I was like I'm out of here I'm leaving you know mm. so and then I got to San Francisco I was like oh I like gay people I thought I just hated men period but then I discovered <clears throat> queens and out gay people I mean the gay people I went to college with were out but they just weren't like I didn't really vibe with them so much, but the sort of more queenie San Francisco people and the more outrageous ones, I was like, oh my God, these people are fun. I love them. Mm -hmm. And they were political. Right. And I just felt like I vibed with them a lot more than I had with the sort of like nervous queens that were being taught that they couldn't be gay in my college, you know? It was Mm. just like, an uncomfortable thing and is this because i was talking we have a mutual friend daniel mm. and he is because you and he met in san francisco around about that time right you? away i got there and i met him within the first month he was my first real friend there because we were besties
3: because were well, your roommates and everything
4: no we no, were not work live together actually. we because, lived together here
3: oh it was here but he because you know that thing you know someone really well and then you just chat one night and you think what <laughs> and the thing that really struck me was that he moved from oh because we were in LA a few weeks ago doing mm. meetings and he said oh you remember when he lived there I was like you lived in LA and <laughs> then he moved to San Francisco he didn't he didn't know what he was going to do he had no money and he moved into this sort of a like a hotel that was like week to week hotel and he said it was full of people who were dying of AIDS mm-hmm. that was the only place that they could um, stay mm-hmm. so it was like a time in San Francisco's history intense. Of, of intense yeah. like just mm. ep- that was the epicentre of that disease and people were just dying all around you and he said he went to the He went to the laundrette in the building in the hotel, put his thing and someone stole all his clothes and so he was like surrounded by all these dying people and no one outfit and no money and then I guess he met you
4: yeah I met him because he was roommates with this girl Michelle that he went to college with and that he grew up with I guess in Ohio and um, we both worked at Flax art supply store and he came in one day and I was like He was just you know that face of his like all smiley and everything and i was like this guy is so much fun and so we neither of us or none of us michelle daniel nor i had any money but we always went to cafe floor every day and we only spoke about money in terms of how many cups of coffee do you have? Mm. I've got three. Like if you had $3, you had three cups of coffee and we'd go and we'd have three cups of
1: coffee mm. and
4: then we'd leave. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we had, but we'd sit in that place for as long as we could and cruise and laugh and we had the best time. It was so much fun.
3: Being surrounded by all that death and all that, I mean, must've been such an incredible, well, vibrant it was intense time.
4: and scary, but of course we were young. Yeah. So as horrible as it was, it was also, you know, us having fun and laughing and going dancing and, you know, flirting and, you know, being part of a scene and going out and protesting in the streets. And so it was um, scary because you'd see all these people, but they were like guys in their 30s, so they seemed so much older than Mm. us. Which was also ridiculous, but it seemed like, you know, it was, you had to be there for a couple of years and make friends with people before your friends started to die. So when we first got there, we only knew each other and then we'd meet people. And then after, you know, I moved there in 88, and by 90, 91, 92, I had friends dying right and left. Yeah. But the first couple of years, I didn't really know anyone who was dying. Right.
2: So it felt like something other than your situation. Yeah,
4: and when you're Mm. a kid, you can make it seem that way very easily, because until you have an experience, it's not real to you. Yeah. Mm. It's funny, there's a project that Daniel and I are working with with our production company
3: that's called Overtime, and it's about the time in about 97, I think, or 96, when the cocktails, you know, the the, the prohibitor cocktails started to work. Mm. And so all these men who had maxed out their credit cards just thought they were going to die suddenly didn't die and, and, and they have overtime and it's, that I think is a fascinating time oh it was really a mess yeah because all these people were there was so much weird shame and guilt and everything and joy but oh, can you imagine it's assuming you're going to die all your friends yeah. have died in the same situation and well, also, suddenly one day you, you're not
4: yeah mm-hmm. and then you know your friends are all of a sudden not dying and they're living and they're like dealing with that but then there's like the friends that just Missed it, you yeah. know. Mm. I had friends that died. Two of my best girlfriends died in '95, and it kind of kicked in in '96, '97, and it was just like, oh my god. No. Know. Mm-hmm. If they had been able to live another six months or a year, they would have been fine. Yeah. Mm. And it's that the those girls were like my best girlfriends, and I just that's that's hard. But then there are other great friends who are still alive. So yeah,
3: yeah. I'm really intrigued about where you because you've had such an incredible even in the time I've known you, I feel like you've done all these different things and almost been all these different people. Right. And Mm. I just am curious about was that always the case? Do you feel you were always like in different and do you feel you've settled now?
4: Oh, no. I mean, I'm making my opera debut in December. So, no, I'm still doing all kinds of things I haven't done before. I mean,
3: settled as the person you are.
4: Oh, I don't know. You know who life is long yeah i mean i guess so i mean sort of i mean i just change all the time it's hard to keep up with things yeah i mean i think that's probably why i'm single because who the hell could keep up with me like you think you have a boyfriend then you have a girlfriend and then you have somebody who's like you know a visual artist and then you have somebody i mean i'm like all over the place yeah yeah uh so i'm maybe confusing to people or i'm confusing to myself so i can't imagine what it's like for other people but i mean at the end of the day i'm Pretty nice. I don't like to cook. <laughs> I love this. So I love eating out. 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 I'm serious. Out. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I, I think what? I'm rather constant, but I'm, you know, a little bit. Any bad habits we should know about? No, none. I have no bad habits. Good.
2: <laughs> Absolutely zero. And if I do,
4: they don't last long. Right, because
2: you change. Yeah.
4: Do you I'm feel like. I'm an addictive personality. That's for sure. You're not. No. Oh, I've okay. done everything, but I don't need to continue doing that. all.
2: A, that's a real blessing, though. I oh, like. I think so. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, I might be as we both reach for our tins of La croix. <laughs> I really didn't have a La croix habit, but
4: even that's kind of tame.
2: But I, it's yeah, I do as strong as it was for a while. I do feel it's a blessing. Like, I, I'm not an addictive person, mm. maybe sugar, but like, I feel really blessed because you can just oh, roll in and out of stuff in a way that totally. you watch other yeah. people get sucked in and it's right. not fair. And
4: you when know, people know. are like that I don't understand even though I, I do like mm. intellectually and I see mm. the effect it has on people and you know I have compassion but I don't actually you know understand it. It's it. funny yeah, though isn't fully. it? Yeah, like When I, people I know are like well things that we've done together and it's all of a sudden become a problem for them yeah. i like
3: yeah totally. Why? Mm. What? And what is the thing that tipped it? T- t- or else, yeah. I don't think it's an interesting thing in America. I've I've thought this a lot because I feel sometimes like you know, I sometimes do things too much, mm. and I've got you know, like drink too much or whatever too much, and sort of think have to oh let's have a little pull it back a wee bit mm. or whatever. But I've I've never felt like oh I want I need I'm waking up and I'm going to have to have a drink first mm. to get it right. And but I think the notion of addiction in America is something that people use take the problem away from themselves mm-hmm. like I've known mm-hmm. people and I think it's, it's, they're in AA or something and they tell me about the thing and I go gosh so you you kind of you woke up a couple of times and you can't remember what happened you know the night before well wow, it's happened <laughs> to you many times <laughs> and I mean I do
4: that even when I haven't been drinking <laughs>
3: <laughs> but then I think it's partly that if that happens that scares them mm. and they say oh I'm an addict now and I can't do it and everyone's got to help me because right. I'm an addict it's like
2: Putting some and it puts black and white around. Yeah.
3: And it makes, yeah. and so addiction is used as, it's, I think it's an overused thing. And I think what, in what, some cases, in some cases, but, it, are, but I mean, certainly. as a thing in, in our culture in general, I think it, it, it saddens me because I think the people who are truly addicts and it's an illness, mm. it's, a, it's an actual chemical sickness, mm. that it pisses me off when people are not really like that, don't have that addiction in that way, but have don't want to monitor themselves. Mm, why is that? I mean, you well. Because I feel that it, that people who are really addicts are not getting enough. Limelight
4: or enough. Over there. <laughs> it
2: comes down to attention.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, I can see why that would piss you off. <laughs> and they're talking and I'm not. <laughs> you know what yeah? you mean? <laughs> I mean? I don't mean that really, but it's just no, the there is like no, a I was firm. I went it's, to AA for a while and it was like that. I went for two months and I was like, oh, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm just mm. middle aged. <laughs> I can't drink the way I drank when I was in my twenties. And also I would you know, you're supposed to have fellowship and I'd go out to dinner with the AA people and it was like alcohol abuse porn. Really like they'd sit there and they'd like try and top each other oh, with their each like, worst story mm. of degradation. And I'd be trying to eat like a cheeseburger or something and be like, I can't listen to this <laughs> shit. I've never woken up, you know, comp- smothered in my own vomit with my cat eating, you know, whatever. (laughs) So I don't wanna hear about it either, you know, so I was like Okay. I mean, I was supportive in the moment, but I was being supportive of myself when I said, Girl, you don't have to go listen to this shit anymore. (laughs) Just don't drink so much.
3: Yeah, Yeah, and and I wonder if that's because I come from a culture that's with alcohol is quite yeah, you know, so you know, it's like this thing's my mum, you know, sort of I remember when I stopped drinking for a, while, a long time ago. Took when I was playing Hamlet, and I came home. And I said, "Hey, mum." She goes, "Oh, darling, darling, you have a drink." I said, "Oh, I'm not drinking. I stopped drinking for like. I'm going to stop drinking for like nine months or something. I'm doing Hamlet." She goes, "Oh," and then like, blah blah blah, and then later we we're having her meal, and she was like, "So, white wine?" I said, "Mum, remember I said I'm not drinking." She was like, "It's only wine."
4: And <laughs> <laughs> like that's, that's common. Yeah, it really is common.
3: <laughs> yeah. Really.
4: Yeah, it's like I know sc- common in Scotland, not in Scotland and, and <clears throat> yeah, in the UK. I think yeah, it's just oh, wine, but here I think it's, that wine is more considered booze. Potent, yeah.
0: Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Yeah. And how did Kiki and Herb come about
4: well, I was in this uh, bad mood one night. <laughs> I was in San Francisco, and I was supposed to go to this party and play for these uh, this gay guy's birthday. Right. And I um, had played another party for, like, no money. Mm. Uh, what, singing, singing songs. Singing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I... I went to the party the week before I had borrowed this thousand dollar dress from this boutique that I worked in and I couldn't even you know afford a cab to go to this party I was supposed to play and so I I was going down the street I'd done my hair and makeup I had this thousand dollar dress in a plastic bag walking through the rain in San Francisco to get to some gig where I hoped to you know look lovely and and sing, mm. and you know, it was just like a disaster. I was bitter, you know. Mm. So then the next week, I was supposed to play this party, and I was like, and also, I was trans, I was pretty, I was young, I was like willowy and you know, vulnerable and soft. I wasn't, but you know, if you wore makeup and the gays were like so misogynist and they were like they expected you to act in a certain way like be bitchy be a queen like Mm -hmm. all of this stuff and i just didn't really feel like that and i resented it in a certain way they expected you to act a certain way Mm -hmm. so i was um smoking a little weed, listening to The Cure, thinking I'm gonna go and play this party, and I just was really dreading it. And my friend, Miss X, had given me this dress with these huge birdseed titties. I said, I don't want it. Mm -hmm. I don't wear false boobs, I don't wear wigs, whatever. She said, just take it. She insisted, it sat in the drawer for the longest time. And then I was like, well, these queens want a bitter, bitchy, fucked up queen. I'll give them one. So I pulled that dress out and I, snatched this nasty old wig that I found in my apartment, and I put on that wig and that dress, and I ordered a cab, and I showed up at the place where the party was and I opened the door and I was like, if some, if you want me to come into this party, somebody pay this goddamn cab right now. <laughs> and they paid for the cab. And I walked I in and I, you know, pretended like I was bombed. Mm. And uh, I, and you Kiki know, just was terrorized wow. the whole thing. And I, I had recorded some tracks, some original songs, and I did my original songs and what eventually became the Kiki voice. and I climbed on the bar and kicked people's drinks over and they had, for some reason, they had this steamed cow's head mm-hmm. as the centerpiece yeah. for the um, snack, you know, the hors d'oeuvre table yeah. and it still had its teeth in it. So oh. I pulled the teeth out and stuck them in my mouth and went around <laughs> spitting teeth at people. Oh my God. It was really fun and of course they loved it. <laughs> right. And I was like, I don't have to sound good. I don't have to look good. I don't have to do anything but accept free drinks and um, terrorize people and I don't even really have to talk to anyone. Yeah. This is a winning combination. So I, I and I had been doing Justin with Kenny. Um, oh, you've been together been just being a you. Yeah, as ourselves doing, you know, lounge versions of pop songs and stuff and like straight end gate clubs in San Francisco and we were doing pretty well, you know, mm. for San Francisco and uh, So Kenny saw me do the same thing at the detour, this bar as Kiki and I like climbed up on this thing because I was young then and I like the gays were on the playing pool and I like jumped from this balcony onto the pool table and (laughs) destroyed their pool game and like with a, you know, cordless mic in my hand. and Kenny was like, oh my God, what the hell is going on? Because I was this, you know, sort of nice person, Mm. sort of soft spoken. And, uh, you know, except for when I wasn't. But uh, Kenny was terrified. And then we, I sang as myself at the gay pride rally. And I think it was June of 1992 or 93. And uh, and I performed, I marched, I screamed. And we had a gig in the straight club that night. And uh, as Justin and Kenny and I was, my voice was wrecked. I was like, <clears throat> look, I can't sing. So why don't, I do Kiki and we'll do our material, and you can be Herb and you're her accompanist. And we sat at this table and we decided Kiki drinked, drank. At that time, um, she was drinking um, vodka martinis. No, I was drinking CC and ginger, and he was drinking like CC, whatever he what drank. CC. Canadian Club Whiskey Rye. Oh, rye and Ginger. God. So we sat there and we ordered drinks and we just started drinking and getting into character and uh and he there had been this uh bar where we did our first show, was called Athens by Night and in that place there was this little old wonderful Mexican piano player named Eddie and he would sit and play the piano all night and he had a picture of his cat on the piano and he'd talk about, whenever he would talk about his cat he would cry because he drank straight tequila the whole time. So Kenny sort of based Herb on Eddie. And then we did our show, our regular material as Kiki Mm. and Herb. And the people went crazy. We got a standing ovation. And I was like, well, let's just do this then, because I only had to have one dress. And then when I moved to New York, I only had to have that one dress and that wig for like the first four years I was here. (laughs) And I was, for the first year or six months, I was, you know, staying on people's couches. And I didn't have a place to live until I moved in with Daniel. (gasps) We got a place in Williamsburg. So I only had to have that one dress, which wasn't light because of those big birdseed titties. It oh, still the same birdseed titties. Still the same dress. <laughs> that dress, I had, even had it replicated. I, I was like, oh, I need a new dress and I had the exact same dress made again. Uh, so anyway, and why, so what why I did you come about. to New York? Because I, uh, I thought, well, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life in San Francisco? I mean, I wasn't unhappy, but I had, you know, not given up my ambitions. If I was gonna be a performer, I knew there wasn't much more we could do in San Francisco and I knew there were things I wanted in my life. And uh, So I moved here and- Kenny Candy came with you? No, he came six months later. Another thing was we always did mushrooms before every Kiki and Herb show. Did you really? We had a gig every Friday night and we'd chew mushroom caps in the cab on the way to the gig and we'd have a 10 o'clock set an eleven o'clock set and a, like a twelve thirty set, so we basically performed from ten until two in the morning, and the mushrooms would kick in. And word got out, and people started shrooming or taking acid and coming to see our shows. So when we got to New York, I was here for six months. I got sit a gig in this cabaret space over on Tenth Street that existed at that time called Eighty Eights.
3: Oh yeah,
4: and we started playing there. We had uh, Thursday nights for a month, and they were going really well so they asked us to um continue our thing so we had been taking mushrooms and we were like look if we're going to be here in new york we have to up our game so we're going to stop taking mushrooms so the first show we did without mushrooms like right after that we had a huge huge fight and kenny went back to san francisco
3: was it to do with the
4: no, I think it was just the pressure whatever. It was the middle of winter, finding places to stay. But that was right after the show we did without mushrooms. Mm. And then uh, we had a big fight, and that was in maybe February. And then I went back in June. We made up. And then I was doing Thursday nights at Cowgirl Hall of Fame with Sherry Vine, Sherry and Kiki. And in the meantime, I got Joe McGinty from the Losers Lounge, and he was playing... The man. I was like, I'm never giving one of them a name again. So it was <laughs> Kiki and the man for a while <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> with Joe, and we toured and it was fun, but you know, it wasn't the same magic as it was with Kenny. And mm-hmm. so Sherry and I were doing this show, uh, Kiki and Sherry, in the back room at Cowgirl Hall of Fame, and she got something going with Hattie Hathaway on Thursdays at Mother. So they were like, Well, if you want to keep doing Thursdays here. So I called Kenny and he came back and we started doing Kiki and Herb every Thursday at the <coughs> like Hall of Fame uh, and that's when it took off mm. and after that it was just like, you know, right? right. that was probably 97 or 98 and then we moved to Flamingo East, then we moved to Fez, then we moved to Cherry Lane, then we moved to Carnegie Hall, right. then we moved to Broadway, then we moved to Carnegie Hall again and that was that. Maybe that's mm. when I
3: saw it, Cherry Lane, that was when one that Scott Elliott directed.
4: Yes. Yes. I think I think I met you then. Yes. That's probably
3: right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so then and I'm intrigued because I think I don't know if I ever told you this, but I also used to be in a double act uh, in Scotland you many did, years yeah. ago and I, uh and we, we did it for a long time. It's called Victor and Barry. And then we wrote a sitcom that was very popular called The High Life. And then I sort of wanted to, I wanted to stop it and left the double act and it was it's, it took a long time for us to kind of recover from that. Yeah. And I think when you've worked so intensely and so closely with someone and it is like a, a yeah, it's like marriage like of sex, mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's it's really it. I'm just really intrigued when I, you know, because I, I know that it was there was it was difficult to
4: speak for five years. Yeah. 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 And, it, and so it was very rough and it was sad, but I mean, you know,
2: it was what had to happen. But yeah, it was very hard. Was it a, did you have to sit him down and say it or was it more circumstantial?
4: Well, you know, I had been sort of saying it for a long time. I mean, I went to London and I was doing my own thing. I was playing at Joe's pub and uh, I, I was sort of, I thought, making it very clear that it was a limited engagement, but, you know, Kenny didn't really hear it that way, mm-hmm. I guess. And uh, so we had... Um, it really happened very quickly because we were supposed to go, this is a funny story, but we were supposed to go to LA and play Perez Hilton's 30th birthday party. Holy
3: shit. Mm.
4: And Perez Hilton had kind of been the person who was really championing Britney Spears and he championed, Mm. um, what's the name of the girl that died? Um, The, Mm. um, what did she do? I go back to black
2: oh, oh, and wine, and wine, wine house. house. And yeah. so he
4: really championed them in this country and gave them that was when he was at his height of yeah. his powers. Yeah. So he said he wanted to produce a Kiki and Herb tour. Wow. And I thought if we and the producers of our Broadway show wanted to work with him and they were like, We're gonna do this uh, show we will do his birthday party and hopefully when we're in LA we can have a press conference and announce the tour. Now this was all happening very quickly and there had been no contracts but I said to my shrink that day I was like if I do this then I'm never going to be able to not do this character again because if we take it to another level and we start to be on TV or anything like that then my goose cooked this is it and and so i had to like make a snap decision so kenny and i and that was at like three o'clock in my therapist's office and we were supposed to leave the next day for la i was meeting kenny at four thirty or 5 for rehearsal we had rehearsal and then after rehearsal we're standing by starbucks on lafayette street and i was like i can't do this anymore this has to be the we have to this is it and I just what
3: you were going to do the Perez Hilton thing and then that was it
4: or not do the that Perez? was it you were not we, going, no, to we were to going to do, it. do the Perez Hilton thing and then, and then and that Derek was going to be it and that's what happened and it really blindsided him and uh, We didn't really have a lot of gigs lined up. So it wasn't like We were we had we had gigs like this was March. I think we didn't really have anything until September uh, But Kenny was devastated And what was it like doing it for the last time in front of
3: all the people at Prisodin's party party knowing they were,
4: was it liberating? Oh, no, I, I think that we both went home and were, I mean, I know. And at the end, I went back to the hotel and I just threw up everything I had in me. I just was so sick and he was too. We just were both destroyed. And that was also probably not I mean, our big thing before that was Carnegie Hall. So we say our final gig was Carnegie Hall because that was our final public gig. But the actual last performance <laughs> was Press Hill, and then of course we we performed. We did our reunion three years ago. Right. Uh, so yeah, no, we were both
2: destroyed by it that night. Ugh. it was horrible. <clears throat> and what was it that you wanted to pump the brakes on? Did you feel that it was?
4: Well, you know, the impulse behind Kiki was this avatar, in a way, that was there to channel everybody's grief and rage during the AIDS years. And then, you know, I didn't anticipate that I was going to spend 15 years doing nothing but channeling rage and anger. Mm. And it was really eating away at me. And I was, you know, doing a lot of things that weren't healthy to compensate for it. Mm. And uh, I realized afterward that, you know, if I find myself doing cocaine, it's because I'm someplace I don't want to be. Mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. a kind of uh, mm-hmm. that's a, that's that's some, so, you know, after that, I just didn't do that anymore. Yeah. I, I, mm. I just sort of wanted to be healthy. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to be creative and and, and before it was like, none of it was really for me and I didn't enjoy it, but other people did, but mm. it was not healthy for me. So. Mm. And then it seems to me after that, I just,
3: when I think about you, it's just you started to do these shows that were these sort of autobiographical.
4: I started writing my own songs yes. to find my own voice. Now I don't really write that many songs or do my own material that much. But you know, like when I recorded the the Dendryf- record, yeah. I did like the sound of my voice because I was singing my own songs. Mm-hmm. And now I'm trying, I'm doing these jazz songs, which I like. But you know, I don't sound like Ella Fitzgerald or you know Sarah Vaughan. I can sing jazz pretty well, but I don't sound like my jazz idols. Yeah, I sound like myself singing jazz. <laughs> uh, so it's great, but I guess that's it. It's not what I hear when I'm singing it because I hear these amazing people. But when I wrote my own songs, I definitely liked the way it sounded, but I don't write that often. And then is that what also that sort of freedom and
3: confidence and sort of uh, liberation as an artist? Because it was around about that time that you transitioned as well, isn't
4: it? Yeah, well, I met Nathan.
1: Mm -hmm.
4: Uh, We were doing... um, Kiki and Herb at ACT right after, uh, yeah, in the summer, right after the, the Tony Awards, that we didn't win a Tony Award, but we were nominated. Oh, and then we were who won and, again? Huh? Who was it that won? I can't remember. That. <laughs> I remember seeing you <laughs> on telly and just being like, what? <laughs> and uh, so then I met Nathan in San Francisco, and he was this like young, super cute, queer kid. And I went to Queer Option, this queer anarchist, anti capitalist thing in the woods in Canada with him, and I sort of got back to my roots of who I was and what I liked about being queer, and uh, I just felt free, you know, and uh, we hadn't broken up Kiki and Herb at that point, but that was in July, and then the Carnegie Hall show was in December, and then the final show was in March. So, yeah, I felt very, I had this younger lover who didn't have expectations, and who didn't care if we had money or anything like that. So I felt uh, liberated to just recreate my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess that, on a certain level, I, I think that I I just was able to live as Justin Bond, but once I stopped having that character, I really wanted to be who I was more fully. And I think part of it was that I'm, you know, I was waiting for my parents to die, to be myself Uh. and then i was like you know what i can't sit around waiting for something like that Mm. it it sounds like such a cub like Mm. so chicken shit like why i didn't do that you know and i i don't know I, i i can't really fully explain it because i was i'm one of these people that can be relatively happy i don't need to be completely happy or at least I didn't at that time. And I was like, well, you know, I have a nice boyfriend. I have a nice place to live. I, I can wear whatever I want and go wherever I want to go. But I felt like uh, I owed it to myself and my community and whatever to just be really honest and be who I was. And it it just took a while because I'm not definitively anything, even now. So to make a definitive statement felt Important, but I also knew it might not last forever because nothing ever does Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, but I was in a place where I felt Safe to do that and so I did I just took the plunge. I'd always said even back in the um Hidden agenda days that I was a non-op transsexual like (laughs) I didn't have surgery but I was still trans Mm -hmm. but then it it was around that time that non-binary and all of the language around what I actually feel like I am kind of coalesced. Yeah. Mm. You know, when I was young, you either had to be a man or a woman. Yeah. And I was like, I I feel like if I become a woman, that's going to be just as big of a lie. Right. Mm. If I, you know, I don't want, I haven't changed my passport because I don't want it to say female. I wish it didn't say male, Mm. but I'm not going to like go to a whole bunch of effort to make a different lie. Mm.
2: Right. I wanted to ask you about um, Gay Shame. Do you remember, as in the club night? Yes, the Ducky. Not, yes. Yeah. Because did you set that up?
4: No. uh, Okay. They did that. That, They still do it every year. Yes. So, but they, uh, I performed at Ducky um, for the first time probably in the 90s or something, because we went over to do It's Queer Up North, as Kiki and her, probably in 98 or something in Manchester. Mm. And then, I'm not sure, but I believe either that time or the next, we went down and did a show in Madame JoJo's. Right, yeah. And we also played Ducky. Yes. And um, so then, you know, I just became a regular in the Ducky thing. I see. Thing. Yes, and then like, when I was, I think Gay Shame, was it the one that was when we were all doing um, Morrissey songs or whatever in some great big venue? And I I, I wasn't kiki there. I was myself.
2: But that so gay shame was so I first time I went, I was probably 21. Uh-huh. And it's so I came out when I was 19. And then just what you were saying earlier about the kids at your college, for example, like I then went to like some pridey stuff or gay stuff and I was like, I'm not understanding I this. Like, anything. I don't I don't like anyone. No, no, I don't like anyone, but I don't feel myself reflected. Mm-hmm. And therefore I feel like I'm now like oh fuck I'm a shit gay man bugger and then I heard about (laughs) and then I heard about Gay Shame and we went to it at that the Troxy that's it in Mm -hmm. um, and, and we arrived and it was like They were, everyone was wearing black and people were carrying coffins through the (laughs) crowds. I can't remember all of it. It was much, but it was really funny. And then you could get like a cheese sandwich. Like there was this person at the edge. Oh yeah, they had
4: the the little uh, like food truck. It was Timberlina. It was the waitress that was serving things out of the food truck with, I forget who, there was Timberlina and and a lesbian, I can't remember who it was, but they were serving food sandwich, cheese sandwiches out of the yeah. food truck.
2: And it was like, but you didn't pay for it, it was just like, do you want one? And I was like, no, this is interesting. You know what I mean? Like this <laughs> is cheese. Like, yeah. And then <laughs> one no, is all sad. over. There's it was nipples. throughout. Yeah, but it felt like everyone was just kind of what pride is is meant to be celebrating difference. But it's like this was actually celebrating yeah. difference. Like everyone was different and who knew what anyone was and no one asked, you know? And you could just roll around and there was a lot of Morrissey and all the music they played at Ducky was incredible. Amazing. Is Ducky still Reader's doing? Reader's yeah. yeah. Is, it? Is it every week? Every Saturday night. And they
4: have uh, oh. the Reader's Wife and then they have the, the something daughter. They, they will have a, oh. a late night DJ and Tracy Thorne DJs wow. there sometimes. Mm-hmm. They have a great roster. She wrote a great book recently. Really, oh, I haven't read it, but yeah, I know. No, really I amazing. want to read it
2: i just want to ask what's next though that's what i was going to ask is because you know you said everything changes so much for you you well you know i'm
4: going to be doing this opera Mm -hmm. it's um the vienna staatsoper uh it's a new opera that uh, the composer olga neuwirth she's the first woman in the 150 years of the vienna staatsoper to be commissioned to write an opera hmm. so it's a world premiere uh on december 8th and it's based on virginia Woolf's novel orlando wow and um oh, fiona that. shaw's the narrator hilarious and i am it's written the novel ended on the day she finished writing it in 1928 but the opera has been written into the present oh, wow. and um and in the present i'm orlando's child Oh, wow. So, uh, is Orlando's that so funny though?
3: Because you're Chums
4: of Tilda, mm-hmm. and she played it's Orlando in the
3: movie. How amazing! Yeah. yeah.
4: So um, I'm going to Vienna to be Orlando's child, wow. and that runs until the 20th of December, mm-hmm. and then taking the cats, and we're going on a European adventure. Oh, oh nice! Pinky so and leather, and I. Oh, you
3: amazing. should come
4: and stay with us in London. I don't know if I can because they'll have the cats. And you can't bring the cats into the UK. And Lord knows, now they've got that new thing. They aren't even. Did you see in the paper? They're gonna. If they do the hard Brexit on October 31st, you can no longer have freedom to travel. So if you. uh, Yeah. Well, if you don't. If you're uh, British. uh, If you're British, you can travel. But if you're a European person and you don't have a British citizenship or passport you're in legal limbo, you have to be out. Anyway, but the opera, darling.
0: you <laughs>
4: <up there in laughs> And then you'll be in Europe, and I'm sure I'll be coming back. I'll just bring the cats home, drop them off at the House of Whimsy, and then come over to London in January or yeah. February to see you on Lestage. Made which wonderful. Which will be fabulous, because I had the best 14. time in London when I was there a few weeks ago. Oh, well, what are, you, what are you doing? Well, I went over to see Barbara Streisand oh, and hide uh, uh And it was amazing. And I uh, performed with David Hoyle. Oh. And at the Bethnal Green Working Men's Club, and I just had the best week there. It was so much
2: fun. Did you feel that it was um, exciting again? I feel like London is exciting again. Well, if you're running
4: around with me, it would be. (laughs) I had a very exciting time. Yeah. Yeah, so it was fun, I actually, really. And I haven't been there as much because the last five summers I was curating performance at the Spiegel tent so I didn't really travel so I've and I'm so lucky because I have this ongoing residency at Joe's pub which you know I can make a living a doing so I've been kind of lazy I haven't been traveling as much but I had such a good time Mm. that I really want to start doing it more, yeah. I'm ready. I settled into my house, I had all these things happen. My dad died, I broke up with somebody, I bought a house, I had to get this, you know, three-story house, I mean, I live in a Stairmaster too. Yeah. And just like, getting all that together, so all these things, and now I feel like that house is kind of under control, I'm not as depressed about things in my life, and I'm, you know, it's a enjoying. New, a
3: new dawn.
4: Yeah, a new day is dawning, mm. so. If they don't, you know, round us up and shoot us, <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, it's true, you know,
4: things could be nice.
2: But <laughs> well, on that we, note... Yeah, yeah there <laughs> we <laughs> go. Thanks, man. Thank you so Thank much. you. Here's a funny fact for you all. Uh, this... The rest of this episode was recorded before lockdown, but because we lost the outro, we're recording this outro now, today. That's how efficient
3: we are here at Homo Sapiens. We've lost a piece of (laughs) tape. It's not even tape, it's sort of digital stuff. We lost an email, basically.
2: Honestly, it's like watching Torvald and Dean go across ice sometimes, the (laughs) organisation of this place, and... But th- what's lovely, Alan, is I get to see you. We get to have a little modern day catch up.
3: There we are. You're in Bryce Norton. I am in the Catskills. We're looking at each other on on our Zooms. We've got our little machines yeah. in front of us, our microphones, and we're talking in in during Pride Month um, mm. about these issues uh, uh, that, that uh, Viv brought up. Looking back at a time at simpler times, we <laughs> I do. You know, we it's did like, the intro I'm- in about February or something, and we did the interview <laughs> with Viv last sometime last autumn, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember. I mean, it's so hilarious to think how different the world was then in both these days. I know. Times.
2: I know, and it's really funny because there's this thing apparently with desert island discs that they record them very far in advance because it sort of doesn't matter. And uh-huh. now you think you have to record everything straight away otherwise the entire world will have changed turned on its yes. axis, you know? Wasn't that a lovely chat yeah. with Viv?
3: Such fun. It's always such fun with her and and also, you know, in the since the lockdown she's just been amazing with her um, anti-glam uh, live shows that she does from her house. You know, her house is called the House of Whimsy.
2: I saw that. Um, that. I've seen. I've seen those on her Instagram. I had forgotten that she DJ'd, um not Paris Hilton, Perez Hilton's birthday.
3: Oh, that's right. I forget. That was hilarious. She's done some <laughs> crazy things in her times.
2: <laughs> yeah, and um, as you can, you can probably hear my washing machine revving up. Is in that the background what that here. is? I thought it
3: was something. <laughs> i mean coming it, over from bryce norton
2: it well, was guess what a, a
3: helicopter went over this house last yesterday really i mean we're in the middle of nowhere and a helicopter i don't know where it was going or who
2: it, was it wasn't it. yours it's was
3: not mine <laughs> i thought it was so amazing to hear all that stuff about the moment she knew she didn't want to do kicking and herb anymore and i think that's a really i always think about viv actually we spoke on an email the other day um I always think of her as this really instinctive person. A bit, she's a bit witchy. I mean, she's a witch. She calls herself a witch. <laughs> I always think of her as this very uh, connected to the earth, solid sort of, I mean, she's, her, her house is called the House of Whimsy, but she's very sort of instinctive. And I love, I, I love that when you are so connected with yourself that you just know something is what you have to do. I, yeah. I, and that's what I've tried to be like as well. I mean, I just, I mean, uh, I'm quite impulsive so I don't always do the things that I think I want to do. But um, I think when you, really, when you really know, you really know. And it's really good to hear other people having made big career decisions based on that. Trusting your instincts. Here's to mix Justin, Vivian, Bond. Absolutely. The next lovely person we'll be talking to on this podcast, aside from
2: uh, each other, will be... drum roll please. The next person, Alan, will be Sadiq Khan. Whoa, the mayor of London Town, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Great chat with Sadiq. And we actually speak a lot about... Um, what is happening to London in light of the fact that all these LGBT or queer venues are shutting down? And what are we going to do, people? Because we've got to resuscitate it. I know, and it's gotta all to make it so better. So much worse now,
3: of course, with the lockdown. I've been reading here uh, in New York about like places like Stonewall, the Stonewall Inn. It's like a landmark, you know, it's a landmark historical thing as a building, mm. but you know, they've got rent. They're not open. It's uh, been disa- disastrous. I know at Club Coming, you know, we're, it's awful. We were kind of thinking, well, it's going to be so, what, even when we can open up, we're so tiny. Uh, oh, there's the dog. Um, there's the dog. We can't, it's just a terrible time. And especially for, you know, uh, uh, a subsection of sort of the nightlife and entertainment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's just, it's, it's terrible. And it's even when bars are allowed to open, I mean, people, we're doing takeaway uh, drinks right now. And I think eventually in a month or something, we can do like have a certain percentage of people in the bar, which is going to just be crazy. You want to go to a bar for community. You don't want to be standing. And, you know, nobody's going to do it. They're all going to flock together at one end of the bar. So the rest of the bar will be empty. It'll be crazy. And if you can have performances. Anyway, all these places are going to uh, be in such peril. And it's going to take a long time. Uh, and and many of them are going to close and it's already a subsection of of, uh, the hospitality and entertainment industry that is really really on the rocks and that Mm. is the LGBT uh, old gaybar of the year
2: because they represent you know for some people it's the only place they can find people like them aside from online yes
3: yes so anyway everybody it's been so lovely to talk to you it was so nice to uh, uh, remember that lovely interview we did with Justin Vivian Bond and we'll be back next week to discuss your views on the interview so don't forget to write to
2: us where do they write Christopher? Uh, they write at hello at homosapiens sapienspodcast.com or alancoming.com forward slash shop <laughs> you can't write to my shop just you watch me you can buy things, though, including the Homo Sapiens t-shirt and sweatshirt. There we are. And you can donate to the Club Coming Community <laughs> Chest, or you can yes. look at things to bid on there. So please do, everybody.
3: And also, uh, make sure you review us on Apple Podcasts. Because uh, if you do a review and we like
2: it, you can get a t-shirt for free. Free. I posted some out this week, by the way. Oh, that's good. There was one so, I forgot, so I can't remember who it was. But yours And maybe...
3: Maybe next week, Uta will have sent us her knitted uh, yeah tea cozies in my bum bag, because nothing's come from Hannah Gadsby. Still,
2: <laughs> what a lovely <laughs> treat to see you, Alan. Thank you, you. Too. and thanks everybody for pew. listening. Yes,
3: see you next time. Lots of love. Bye. Bye.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.